All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good? Smiling? Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and, uh, and take those out. And uh, we're going to look in Luke 12 uh, here in just a few minutes. Luke 12. We'll begin in verse 13. Before we do that, let me do a couple of housekeeping things. One would be to introduce myself. My name's Matt, and I am one of the pastors here at Renewal. We recognize that the summer provides incredible opportunities for many of you to be here for the first time. So if you're a family member or visiting at the invite of someone in our church, welcome. We are really delighted that you are here. Welcome to our temporary home at uh, Mitchell Road. Uh, we like it. We like the school here and uh, have a great opportunity uh, together. Uh, church, those of you that are a part of Renewal that call this home, please don't miss the opportunities that come this summer to invite folks uh, to join you on Sundays. Summer uh, provides an opportunity where many leave the normal rhythm of life that captivates us throughout much of the year. And folks are much more apt, I think, to uh, take advantage of an invite to come and gather with the body. So please don't miss those opportunities. We'll be here uh, throughout the summer um, gathering together every Sunday at 10 a.m. Let me tell you a, a bit of what we're going to do beginning next week. This Sunday is going to be a uh, standalone Sunday. Uh, we're going to talk through the issues of money and giving and finances. I know that's um, good news to many of you uh, who love, uh, love those sermons. Uh, we're going to take an opportunity to do that uh, this week. Next week, we'll pick up with our summer teaching series uh, called Great is the Lord. We are going to spend the summer in Psalm 145 together. Um, we have uh, next week some prayer magnets uh, for you, and as a congregation, we're going to attempt uh, to memorize this psalm for uh, one central task for us as a body this summer is to reflect on the nature and character of God. We're going to kind of hold up God and spin and look at the attributes, the character of Christ uh, and God as it's specifically revealed in Psalm 145, where there are about 15 uh, attributes of the nature and character of God that are teased out in this uh, really magnificent psalm, and we're going to hold those up. I, I remember uh, when I proposed to Sarah, we're celebrating uh, 10 years of marriage uh, this summer, and I remember when I first proposed, we did it on uh, Blue Parkway, uh, gave her a diamond, driving back down kind of through Pisgah National Forest, and I remember my wife uh, I had a little Ford Ranger pickup truck at that point. She had her diamond ring, and she was, uh, had it kind of facing uh, the dash of the, the truck, and she was kind of spinning it and twirling it and just giggling and smiling. I'm like, babe, what are you doing? And she was kind of making it, you know, do all these little different images and designs and displays. Because I mean, you hold up a diamond, and you spin it, and you see different reflections, different angles of the beauty that is this diamond ring. That's what we're going to attempt to do this summer is hold up God before us, his magnificence, his splendor, and spin it a little bit each week and try to capture the brilliance and the beauty of who God is uh, for us as a community. So that's, that's our task starting next week. We'll do that uh, through the entirety of the summer, and then we'll kick off a study in the Gospel of Luke uh, starting at the beginning of the school year. So uh, with that in mind and trajectory for us, let's pray, and then we'll dive in uh, to what the scriptures have for us this morning. Father, we bow 
our body posture now, attempting to, in some small way, picture what should happen with the totality of our lives. We should humbly submit to your loving leadership in our lives. And we recognize that as broken as we are, we need your help to humbly come under your word this morning. We need your help every day to protect us from trying to be our own gods. To submit to you as the rightful ruler of all. Would you protect us this morning from standing outside of your word or above it? But would you allow it to have due weight and pressure on our hearts, our affections, and our actions? Would you be gracious to me to rightly reflect the beauty and the brilliance that is your word this morning? We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. So why uh, we have spent the last five weeks discussing the DNA of renewal, who are we, what are we seeking to be about as a community, holding up our five core values. Uh, Each year we celebrate as a community, we started this last year, Uh, we'll do it again throughout this month, uh, taking up a first fruits offering, which is kind of above and beyond our tithes as a way of giving back to the Lord out of his provision, we thought it would be a great opportunity to hold up the idea of money and giving for us as a community. And lest you uh, run in your mind to, oh no, the church is in trouble. No, we're not. Um, God is taking care of his body. He is providing for us. This is not a message out of desperation to try to manipulate someone into giving more than they're currently giving. But it provides us a great opportunity to hold up what is super central to the message and teaching of Christ. In his parables, of the 38 unique parables that Christ gives, 16 of those deal specifically with the issue of money. In the scriptures alone, there are over 2,000 verses that hold up this issue of money and specifically the connection that money has to our hearts. There's more teaching in the New Testament on money and wealth than there are on hell and heaven combined. Five times as much on money than there is on prayer. And so before we're too quick to get squeamish about issues of money and finances and our giving, we've just got to affirm that if this is something that was so central to the teaching of Scripture, it has to be central to the life of the church. And coming off of a series like DNA like we just did, this, this makes total sense. Because our giving is intimately connected to the mission of the local church. It is uh, a tool that God uses and gives us for the accomplishment of his mission, and particularly it is a means of accomplishing what we talked about last week, us utilizing the gifts that God has entrusted to us, which though those may be distinct for us all, money and stuff is one thing that unites all of us. We have all been entrusted with some measure of treasure from the Lord. And the question is, how do we steward it in light of 1 Corinthians 4, that it is required of those who have been given a trust that they must prove faithful? 
So how do you steward what God has entrusted to you in a manner that is faithful to the entrustment that you've given? I'm always captivated by missionary stories. If this is off of your radar and you've been a believer for some time, I would encourage you at least once a year to read a biography of a Christian giant. Pick one. Take Spurgeon. Take Hudson Taylor. Take uh, uh, someone and just read through the testimony of their life. These stories are quite captivating. One that I wrote this morning was the story of a man named Bill Borden. He's off the radar for most of us. This is a man that in the early 1900s was born rich. His parents were British aristocracy. He was a descendant there. His father had made a fortune in the Chicago real estate uh, boom and silver mining in Colorado. By the age of 21, Bill was already worth a million dollars. Okay, this is 1908, so we're equivalent to an excess of $50 million or so today. In 1912, this handsome, intelligent, well-educated, popular, and immensely wealthy man at the age of, at the age of 25 gave away his entire fortune, gave away the entire million dollars, half of it to missions in the U.S. and half to missions overseas. And then after giving away his entire estate, he set sail for missionary work among Muslims in Egypt, spent a year learning Arabic to travel from there to the remote parts of China to engage unreached people groups with the gospel. Upon arriving in his new location in China, he within a month died of cerebral spinal meningitis shortly after reaching his location. Now, in our economy, stories like that don't make a whole lot of sense. The question that I have when I read stories like that is, what makes a man like that tick? Like, what distinguishes a man that would say, I'll give up everything, I'll travel? Uh, what is it that, that wires a guy like that? This morning, we're going to hold up a story that Jesus tells from Luke 12. Uh, let's let our eyes uh, rest on the text this morning, beginning in verse 13. We'll read this story and then um, have some commentary and then read, read a bit more. So Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made, you a, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose shall they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now we are early in the narrative, uh, in the story uh, of Jesus' travels in the book of Luke. Luke 12 puts us at a time in Jesus' ministry where he is really battling between two tensions. On the one hand, he is incredibly popular. 
throngs of people are following after him. He's a miracle worker, a rabbi teaching uh, many followers, but also he's beginning to incite some opposition. People are beginning to provoke and say, run him out of towns. He doesn't last very long in the places that he traveled. And specifically, in Luke 11, we have his opponents attempting to trap him in something that he might say. So in this text, we have the dueling tension between immense popular acclaim and radical opposition. And to that, the Lord interjects these stories on money. Okay? Uh, if you're intensely popular, the thing not to do is talk about money. Okay? It's going to end your popularity quite quickly. In this context, we have a man come to Jesus with a family problem. The idea would be here that he's trying to trip Jesus up, uh, trying to catch him in something that he might say that's awry. He comes to him with a family problem related to the inheritance. This man is likely the younger of two brothers who has uh, been given some sense of a sum of money. Quite typically, the older brother would have, had the, uh, would have been the executor of the estate and the recipient of the larger sum of money in order to care for the estate. But the younger brother, seemingly in, uh, in keeping with the prodigal son story, wanted his inher- inheritance, he wanted to take it, and he wanted to use it for himself. So he comes to Jesus and says, my brother and I have a dispute about stuff, Will you settle this for us? Now, as a parent of three, this is a daily scenario for me, okay? Daddy Hudson stole my toy, tell him to give it back, okay? That's quite akin to what we see in this text. Jesus, things aren't working out for me. My brother's not playing very fair. Will you just settle this deal? This would have been quite common to bring a dispute that you couldn't settle before a trusted rabbi lay it at his feet and say, decide it for us. Corey and Avery, come to me. Daddy, we both want this singular toy. Tell me who gets it. Okay, this would be the issue. And his words to Jesus are quite revealing. Because what he doesn't say in this case is, Jesus, render a right judgment on the matter. But rather, Jesus, side with me. Tell my brother to give me, okay? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He wanted Jesus to meet his financial needs. Settle the matter and do so in a way that is pleasing to me. And to this, Jesus tells a story, a story that he encapsulates for us at the beginning with this statement. This is the principal lesson, and as a great teacher, Jesus doesn't meander through what the main idea is, but he gives it to us in a nugget. This is the central teaching of this text this morning, is this principle, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It may be helpful for you just to write that out on a piece of paper, in your text, uh, in your scriptures around this. This is such a simple teaching, and yet it has loaded implications for our lives. Jesus says in this situation, one's life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, and uniquely, Jesus doesn't in this text render a judgment, but he does what Jesus frustrates the stew out of most of us for doing. 
He takes a behavior and runs to the heart. He says, I'm not going to settle this matter. I'm not an arbitrator or judge over you. But let's hold up what this issue says about our hearts. And he turns here to the multitudes and says to them, take care. Watch out. This is a neon lights principle. Watch out. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Paul is going to say the same thing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. He holds up this subtle sin, this pursuit of money, and he says, watch out because there is a subtle and yet catastrophic danger related to what you do with your stuff. He tells a story that holds up for us one economic model. We'll call it this way, the economy of the kingdom of the world. He paints the picture of the economy of the kingdom of the world telling about the land of a rich man. I'll give you kind of five movements through this parable. The economic model that this man is working from, and quite honestly, the economic model that most of us operate from. The first is simply this, work hard. Okay? Work hard. We're not told the dynamics of this rich man, but clearly he's got land that either he or his servants are working, and this land has produced plentifully. In the text, even from Jesus himself, there's no criticism of wealth, his manner of acquiring it, or of its increase. This man has clearly worked hard, and as a result, secondly, God provides. Now, this is subtle, because the danger would be to assume that I work hard and therefore I provide. And yet what we see in the text is that through hard work, God provides. Hard work yields results. There's nothing wrong with this. And yet it's still from the hand of God. The illusion, the subtle illusion, is that you are providing for yourself. And yet what we see in the text is that, that God gives. He gives an increase. And thus, our hearts should be led and prompted to trust in the Lord. In fact, this is imprinted on our American money, right? My, if that were only the case. In God we trust with the money that we spend. And what we see thirdly, work hard, God provides. This seems to be the big caveat of the parable that we then desire more. Eleven times in this parable of the land of the rich man, we see this idea, I will. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Clearly, we have a case study in greed. A consuming, an all-consuming desire to have more. And this isn't tied to how much is in our checking account. So lest you think we've got a lot of young couples here. Well, dude, this is an easy one for me because I have nothing. Okay. Now, I got some Kraft Mac in the, I mean, in the pantry. That's about all I got, all right? You can be as greedy with nothing as you are with much. 
Greed isn't tied to what's in your bank account at this moment, how many toys that you have. It is a state of the heart. The idea that you should have it all. God has given, my land has produced, thus I should have. This is the famous John Rockefeller quote, how much is enough? One dollar more. Okay, One dollar more. And as a result, you desire more. Well, the necessary outcome of desiring more would be you acquire more, right? I've worked hard. I've earned it. Sure, God's given, but it's really my work. I desire these things. They're tied to greed that's in my heart. And as a result, I've got the money to do it. So therefore, I just build bigger and better barns. Not likely your temptation this morning to take your bank account and build a big barn. Perhaps it's some of you, but you can apply, I mean, it's fill in the blank, bigger house, a newer toy, car, I mean, you fill in the blank with whatever it is. I've got it, thus, it makes logical sense that I would acquire more. It's, in fact, good financial planning, right? God has provided, I've been wise, this is the next pragmatic decision. Therefore, I should get. Even in the church, this theology slips its way into the crevices of our teaching all the time. God has blessed, and therefore it is right that we should have. I read a preacher this week with this brilliant quote. If the mafia can ride around in a Lincoln Continental town car, why can't the king's kids? Okay, see what's going on there? If they can have it, why can't we? God has given right. We've got an abundance. Why not show it? And the end is that we then rest. But specifically, I would say we rest unsatisfied. The thought in this man's mind in the text is, I'll relax, I'll eat, I'll drink, and I'll be merry. Now, we don't see the outcome of what comes in this text but what we know is that this rarely happens. The desire for more and the acquisition of more only feeds an increasing desire for more and acquisition for more that actually becomes godlike in our lives. Make money your God and it will plague you like the devil. We run after these things and they leave us unsatisfied. And we know, even if the man did have the ability to relax, eat, drink, and be merry, we are graced with Jesus' impression of this man. We see clearly how he categorizes someone who works from this economic model. Work hard, God provides, desire more, acquire more, and rest. What does God think of this strategy for using our stuff? Quite simply, he calls this man a fool. Not to uh, understate your intelligence, but you do not want God calling you a fool. Okay? That is a bad descriptor for our lives. In the text, fool is not someone that's not, not intelligent, using their mind, but fool specifically is the wise utilization of what you do have. It's not some intellectual IQ measure, but it's wise discernment. 
So someone that's got a lot of intellectual smarts can still be a fool, and in fact often is. Jesus says, this man is a fool. This is the big question with success in the economy of the kingdom of the world is says who? Who says the things that we are running after are definitions of success? In the world's eyes, this man was a man to be envied, and yet in God's eyes, he was one to be pitied. God says, this night, your life is demanded of you. This is the language of a loan. That the loan has been called. What brilliant imagery from Christ. That the loan has been called. It's payback time. And what's going to happen to all this stuff that you've prepared? The idea is, who's going to get it anyway? The writer of Ecclesiastes says it uh, more succinctly in chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. I must leave my wealth to one who comes after me. And who knows whether this man will be a wise man or a fool. That's great. All this stuff that I've inherited, I'm just going to pay it forward to somebody else. And who knows, this dude could be a raving fool. Okay? All the stuff that I get, what's it really going to amount to anyway? This is the question. A bit later in the same context, in verse 31, Jesus holds up four the crowd, and specifically for his disciples, a contrasting economic model from the one that we have just seen. The economy of the kingdom of the world is contrasted with the economy of the kingdom of God. Really, specifically, in verses 31 through 34, we read a parallel to what Jesus says in his classic Sermon on the Mount. Instead, So in contrast to this view, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He contrasts for us the economy of the kingdom of the world with the economy of the kingdom of God and says, if you are in the kingdom of God, if you are under his rule and reign, things change. Um, Last week, uh, I was traveling to Columbia and... um, I didn't have a place to stay. I was on a different side of Columbia than I normally uh, can crash with some family. And so I uh, contacted a buddy. This is the perk of having pastor friends. It was like, hey, I need, uh, I need a place to crash. You got anybody in your church that'll let me sleep on their couch? So he uh, texted some single dude never, I never met until I showed up at his house to sleep on his couch. Uh, it's awesome. And uh, so, you know, walk in, make an introduction, all this kind of deal. I have net. I, <laughs> I walk into the living area, and dude has um, just the, the, the mass set of instruments, okay, like uh, electronic drums and all this. I'm like, okay, so my mind's naturally, hey, so you're a musician, right? It's like, nah, bro, I play video games. Okay, so this was all for one of the, I don't know what the video games are, that, you know, whatever you do, and he's jamming. I mean, he looks like he's got the setup, and I'm telling, I'm not exaggerating this. I mean, his whole fireplace was covered with video games. 
He puts me in this spare room that just has the, I mean, it's just video game shrapnel thrown all over the place. He and his buddies, the TV, unfortunately, is mounted on the wall. I'm sleeping here in the bedroom, and the, the, the video game TV. So uh, not a lot of sleep happened that night. His, uh, we were there, and his girlfriend comes over, um, and uh, my buddies tell me later that you know, they're getting serious and moving towards marriage and kind of quips, and this is the principle, that all that's getting ready to change, right? Video game world is getting ready to change. Because when you put video game world under a new master, <laughs> that goes away. You lose some of the authority and the right to do some of the things that once consumed you. This is the principle of following Christ, that when you come under his leadership, the economic model, the priorities, the principles, they have to shift. He holds that up and says, this is the way they should shift. In contrast to simply working hard and getting more, we are told here in the text to treasure God. To treasure God. This includes working hard, and yet it is specifically not motivated simply to work hard. It is motivated to seek the kingdom of God. And this, specifically, is the thing that you should be consumed with, that you should worry about. Am I treasuring God rightly? And in verse 34, he tells us the level at which this treasuring happens. It happens on a heart level. If you want a map to what is going on in your heart, follow your resources. If you are a college student with $10, or a family with a six-figure bank account, follow the way that you spend your money and you have the direct line to your heart. There's no greater picture for what is going on there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Find your money and you find your heart. And specifically here, we have to affirm, even as we talk about this as a church, that God doesn't need your money or he will take it. Not as if he's saying, give me, give me, give me, I don't have enough. If he needed your money, he will take it. He wants your heart. He wants wants to be captivated at a heart level. So he says, treasure me. And from that will flow your stuff. And specifically, we see the same principle at work that God provides. Notice that in the text. It's as if he has these soothing, calming words. Fear not, little flock. Speaks to us as sheep. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Just to give you stuff, but God is a good giver and he desires to provide. He desires to provide, and let's make this explicit. If you're here this morning, he already has provided. There is nothing that you can give that was not first a gift to you. Everything that you have. He is a good, benevolent provider who loves to care for his sheep. 
And he says, I'll provide. And in fact, the principle that we see throughout the scriptures is he provides in excess. Feeding 5,000, we don't have anything. We need something. God multiplies. He provides. And what happens? There's leftovers. I got you and then some. Some of you have the privilege of being the gracious recipient of saying, I'm going to give till it hurts and watching God provide. You know the joy that comes from saying, we don't have it. To open our home and show hospitality, to care for a needy neighbor, to tithe in our local community of the church, we don't have that. But we're going to give and we're going to trust God and you have seen him come through for you. This is the nature and character of God. And thus he says, give. 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 See your possessions, give to the needy. The best means is relinqu- of relinquishing your death grip on your stuff is to give it away. It's just to give it away. Give more. In contrast to acquiring more, God's given. Well, thus I can give more away. This happens at an individual level. I just alluded to this. Showing hospitality, caring for folks, opening your home. Can you put out one more plate for a kid that doesn't have a family? We all, it happens at that level where we all say, who has God put around my life that I can be open-handed with? And it happens at a corporate level. That we say, I'm a part of a gathered community called a church. I trust the leadership. I come under their authority. We can corporately do more together than we can separately. And so I want to invest in that. I want to invest in that out of love for what God is doing at the local church. We do this uh, through our ongoing gifts, through our ongoing tithing. You as a community have historically been an incredibly generous people. And as pastors, we say thank you. Uh, We attempt and we hope that you being here demonstrates that you trust us with the resources that you entrust to us. We see that as a great stewardship, and we attempt to honor those resources. We give a lot of money away. We attempt to plant churches. uh, We attempt to care for people in need. Uh, Obviously, we don't attempt to build cool buildings, okay? Um, Though the Lord may give facilities, that's not priority for us right now. We also do periodic things like this first fruits giving that's been before many of you uh, as a congregation. In just a few minutes, we're going to have a time of response where if you came this morning with your first fruits gift, we want you to see this morning as you're giving as an act of worship. Now, this is true every Sunday. Giving for us is not this sidebar deal that we do, but it is an extension of our worship. This money that we give will give us opportunities to plant churches, to train leaders, to invest in the work that God is doing outside of renewal. If this is new language for you, you can go on our website and see uh, what we're going to do with the resources that are entrusted to us. But more specifically, I wanted you to hear a story this morning uh, of people that have been faithful, your peers, that have been faithful to give to the work that Renewal is doing. Uh, in just a minute, we're going to hopefully roll a video from Brett and Megan Strife, who have been here um, in our church from day one. And I wanted you to hear them share a word of testimony about God's faithfulness uh, as they have been faithful to give. Guys, can we show that?
So the question is, before us this morning, is, is this, uh, for most of you, I would assume it's not like, oh, I'm supposed to give? Never knew that. The reality is, though, that our hearts run back to our stuff like a moth to a flame, and we pursue it. So what is it that switches our affections for the economy of the kingdom of the world to the economy of the kingdom of God? What produces an overflowingly generous heart that in the face, even if you know Brett and Megan and know their story, if anyone has an excuse not to give, it's the stripes. How do you produce a generous heart? Let me remind you as we close this morning the words from Paul from Philippians 2. And holding up for us a better model than guilt, God's given, I got 10%, I'm going to give it, I'm going to do it, I've checked my box. Rather, he says this about Christ, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Paul goes on in that text to hold up for us the work of Christ, the suffering servant who gave up equality with God as a thing to be grasped and made himself nothing for us. You will, it is a trite saying, but you will never outgive God. In the gospel, we have one who surrendered it all so that we might have life. And it is this foundation, the grace of God, that provokes in us gratitude. Gratitude to give, gratitude to grow in our giving, gratitude to be open-handed with our lives. My prayer for you this morning is that at the end of your days, with whatever God has entrusted to you, you would not stand before the Lord and him say, you fool. I gave you much, and look what you did. We have opportunities daily to open our hands from the model of the kingdom of this world and give gracefully to the economy of the kingdom of God. This morning, I've already alluded to this. We're going to give you an opportunity to give, and we're going to try to couch it as an act of worship because this is what I want to train our hearts to do every week, not to see the offering baskets pass and say, oh, I'm supposed to do that, but rather say as an extension of my submission to the word, my hearing of the singing, my singing that I'm going to give. Whether it's a widow's mite, whether it's your tithe, whether it's above and beyond. In your seats, you have first fruits envelopes. If you're here this morning and you're a member of our community, uh, we invite you to give in the back, uh, right directly behind me. Uh, we've put a couple of boxes there. Should the Lord provoke your heart and it be an act of worship for you and you desire to, as we're singing, you can go and put those in as an act of worship. If you would rather discreetly, with no one looking, drop those in, this is your discretion to do that as you choose. What we would do, what we would invite you to do is to all pray during this time that you would pray that the Lord would give you grace to grow in your giving that the reality of Philippians 2 would press on your soul and that you would consistently ask questions, how can we give more? It's the question that Sarah and I are consistently asking as well. 
What can we do to be more open-handed with the stuff that God has entrusted to us? I want to pray for us, and as I do, Stephen's going to come and just uh, begin to play. Um, during this time, you could pray, you can give, and in a moment, we'll join uh, to conclude our time in singing to Christ. Let's pray.